one of the sure ways that we praise the Lord is by echoing to Him uh, what He has done and who He is. One of the sure ways we praise Him and give Him glory is by, um, in our prayers, we repeat the things that He has done for us. We repeat the things He has promised. Um, When we pray, we speak to Him like we're echoing the Scriptures. Um, This is what the Lord did in Psalm 145, which is what was just read. Did it in Psalm 103. He's echoing our text today. He's echoing our text today from Exodus 34. That's what we'll be today. That's where we'll be today. Exodus 34, verses 1 through 28. And we'll look at the character of the Lord defined. Now, I'm only going to spend... This is broken up into two sections, and I'll sort of explain it a little bit, and then you'll kind of see it. But I'm always hesitant when I do stuff like this because, you know, we we all happen to be creatures of habit. And so my habit is to, like, have an introduction, have some points, have some development behind those points, and pray and go home. Um, but this is sort of weird, uh, a weird way I've done it, and I hope it's, um, I hope it's fruitful for you. I've, I've broken up this text into sort of two different sections that I see from it. And, and the first is, uh, the Lord is teaching lessons that He's already taught, but He's adding emphasis to them. So that's kind of the first way that we'll see. He's revealing lessons he's already taught, but he's choosing to add some extra emphasis. Remember, he's giving the Ten Commandments again today in our text, if you've read ahead. Um, I'm sure you've read it before. But he's also, at the end, we'll discuss this, how the Lord is going to describe or define his nature to Moses. Honestly, even though we're only going to spend such a little time on it, you know, half or less than half of a sermon on it. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 are two of the most important verses in all of Scripture because they define the nature of God. They define uh, His goodness. They define who, who He is in both good and in goodness to keep His justice, uh, to keep His wrath, to keep His word, to not let the guilty go unpunished. But we won't spend a ton of time on that specifically today because we do almost every week in some way, shape, or form we talk about the characteristics of God because what God does is God echoes Himself throughout Scripture. Uh, and so when we read Scripture, we echo then the voice of God um, in our lives, uh, in public setting, wherever we may be. So look at Exodus chapter 34. I'm going to read um, all of that. Exodus chapter 34, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets out of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning, and he went up to Mount Sinai. I'm not going to focus on this after this part right here, but I want, I want you to be reminded of this as it comes to obeying the Lord, as it comes to following Him, as it comes to trusting in Him. The Lord told Moses to do something, and Moses did what? He rose early with anticipation with excitement. Obedience is not just about doing what the Lord says. It's about doing it right now. Just remember that as we go through our, through our other part of the text today. I just want that to be sort of an underlying thought that you have. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been seen in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited to eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods." You shall not make for yourself any god of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you. And at the time appointed in the month of Abib, for in the month, uh, for in the month Abib you, shall, uh, you came out of Egypt. Excuse me. All that open the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb or... If you shall not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel, For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall cover your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Pray with me this morning. God, there's so much in here, so much information, some very obscure rules and regulations. Lord, would you help us to just be able to weed through what we need to know for today and what we need to know as sort of like an overarching and general idea about your character and your nature. Lord, would you teach us to love you more every day as we open your word? And would it cause us to have a passion and a love and a fervor for others that we may fulfill the first great commandment and the second great commandment? God, would you teach us from your word today? Help us to be humble. Help us to receive it. And help us to honor you in our lives by living it out. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're coming to a close in the book of Exodus. And we find Moses again interceding for his people. He is again speaking with his people on their behalf. It's at least the fifth time that Moses has made intercession for the people. At least. There's probably more than that. And there's probably uh, some that weren't even recorded. And again, we see that Moses has found favor with the Lord and the eyes of the Lord and stepped in on behalf of his people. And the Lord tells Moses to make preparations to receive the Ten Commandments. The Lord tells Moses to be ready in the morning with two stone tablets. He says, Moses, you cut these tablets out. This time it's different, right? The first time, who cut the tablets out? It was the Lord that cut the tablets out. 
Then he says, go up to the top of Sinai again, this holy meeting place where God has descended to speak with Moses on numerous occasions. And the Lord tells him that the Lord will write down these commands that he has given him, which Moses broke at the foot of Sinai when he saw the golden calf, which is what happened. But it was different than the first time. The first time the Ten Commandments were given, when the Lord wrote them in stone, He carved them out with His own hand. This time the Lord says that He would write them. But Moses was actually one that scribed them. Now you look at this verse and you might think, well that, you know, maybe that takes away some of the validity of the Ten Commandments. You know, Moses is the one that's scribing them. Moses is up on the mountain by himself. He's got a little freedom to write whatever he wants right? Maybe you have a tendency to think that, but can I ask you a question? Who wrote the Bible? Holy men who were taught by the Holy Spirit. Thank you for our our two children that know the uh, catechism, Blake and Morgan. Holy men who were taught by the Holy Spirit. This here is another instance of the Holy Spirit of God giving the words of God to a man of God to transcribe for the people of God. It's another instance where a holy man is given the Word of God to write that Word down. So the Lord gives Moses the Ten Commandments again. But in the same meeting, He also instructs Moses to write some things alongside the Ten Commandments. It's sort of a Ten Commandments plus the commentary, right? It's a commentary. He gives a little bit more to just the Ten Commandments. And the Lord reemphasizes here some valuable principles that He pulls from the Ten Commandments. Now, a lot of these, some of these things we've discussed in the past, and we're not going to discuss again, like boiling a goat in the mother's milk and, and some of these other more obscure things. But a lot of these other issues, or a lot of these other issues that the Lord brings up, they're invaluable for the people of God going forth, but also they're invaluable for us. So Moses continues to make intercession by asking the Lord to go out in their midst. Remember, the Lord had basically promised that His presence would be with Moses, right? But not necessarily in their midst. The Lord wasn't going to tabernacle with them like He had promised before. And we learned last week that Moses and the people knew that the only way to make it was not if the Lord was with them, not if an angel was with them, but if the Lord was in their midst. So the Lord here is promising to be with Moses. First by renewing His promise to defeat those enemies that stood before them and to give them the promised land. But also by promising to do marvels in their midst that they or no other nation had seen or experienced before. So the Lord here is showing grace again. He's showing mercy. He's showing His loving kindness. His steadfast love, His slow nature to anger by promising to be with them on the next leg of the journey. Now there's so many details at this point that are brought out of the text. I'm not going to give every single, we're not going to go over every single one of those today. We've gone over all of these in some way, shape, or form over the last two years. But I only want to break down two parts of the sermon, uh, much like I did last week. And I, I, wanna, I want you to know that the whole Law here is given again. All of the Ten Commandments are given again. But the Lord also points out three specific aspects of the law that must not, over be, over, that must not be overlooked. He is essentially saying all the law here is important, but pay special attention to these. And then, he, and then at the end of the day, I want to lay out characteristics that define the Lord Himself. So the Lord gives Moses the entire law, but He places special emphasis on three things, and I want us to look at those today. Look at verse 11 through 16. Observe what, the, observe what, I, have command, what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out uh, before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, uh, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pill- pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall not, or for you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, 
And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. And you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. The Lord is giving Moses and the people ten commands again, but he's also giving three important principles that they must follow, and they're important for us to follow today. And the first is this, friends, and this in an age where all Christians, and this is a continuation of last week, so if you weren't ready, if you, were, if, you, if you didn't have enough of that punch in the gut last week, get ready. Here's some more. Do not make a treaty with the people of the land. This is what the Lord says. He gives the Ten Commandments again, and He says, do not make a treaty with the people of the land. Now in this time, the people, uh, in the way that people were, the people groups, um, they were inseparable from their gods. So if you made a, people, a treaty with the people of the land, then you made a treaty with the gods of the land. So the Lord is saying, don't make a treaty with them. And then he's also saying, by default, don't make a treaty with their gods. Now, because of Jesus, things have changed. We have the blood of Christ that keeps us and protects us. And we have also been given a responsibility under the new covenant to be God, to be the gospel to the nations, right? The Lord, in his, one of his final commands says, as you are going, as you're going to the nations, you know, Acts 1.8 even reiterates that. So things are a little bit different for us, but the principle still stands firm. Do not make a treaty with other people, with, other, with the other nations that you're coming across. They were told to tear down their pillars. That's, their, that's the supports of their temple. The supports of their places of worship. And their ashram. These were their, the places that they propped up their gods. Why were they told to tear it down? Because the Lord is a jealous God. The point here is, and although it sounds horrible in our mindset, it sounds horrible looking back on this story with sort of judgy eyes, the point was to completely annihilate their people and places of worship. The point was to physically lay waste to the remnants of the false god. Essentially, so that they would not allow themselves to intermingle religions. The reason is because if you became friends with someone of a false religion, you might date someone of a false religion. If you dated someone of a false religion, excuse me, you might marry someone of a false religion. And inevitably that false religion would be grafted into your life and to the life of your family for future generations. The nations that were before them were to be destroyed in order that God would not allow them to draw, uh, those people to draw His people's attention away from Him again. Destroy everything before you lest you be tempted to use what is left behind. Now something must be said, and I'm certain that I don't have to say this to you, but I don't want any of you to be like a so-and-so mosque shooter, so I want to tell you this, Okay? This command is not in, in play for Christians today, okay? I feel like this is sort of goes without saying, but you never know, you know? This is my disclaimer for all who might hear this one day. This command is not in play for you today. The command of God is not to destroy mosques. It's not to destroy Buddhist temples. It's not, to, it, it, it's not, it, it's not the same. Because Jesus says, listen, I've opened the gates and hey, even though I've opened it for Jews and I've opened it for Gentiles, and hey, remember, you're a Gentile. You're a part of these people. You're a part of this group that I'm telling to destroy. This is not a command for us today. But So what is the takeaway for us? The request of God for His people then and the request of God for His people now is that they remove every remnant of the conquered and defeated life from their midst. This, just, this isn't just sin and temptations from the past, but these are also little idols that might pop up in the future. Little seeds that are left, by our defeated, that are left from our defeated and conquered old life. The takeaway is this, friends, is that idolatry starts long before we see it pop up 
in our life. Idolatry starts when we leave remnants, when we leave room for seeds, room for growth in our life, when we leave little, little uh, weaknesses in our armor. Idolatry starts by the small things and the big things when, we let into our, when they let them into our life, even though they're dead. When we let them come through our armor, through our defenses. The Lord instructed His people then to demolish anything that would be a seed of idolatry. Because idolatry broke the covenant with God and, making, and it made a covenant with another God. God's instructions for them were always to sweep out the old life, but also to preemptively take anything else that might root in their life in the future and move it away. Now, I'm going to say some things that some of you aren't going to like. But honestly, and I'm not, trying to, I'm not looking for pity, it is the life of the pastor to say things that people don't like to upset people in order that some might repent. So I'm going to say a few things that you're not going to like, and some of you might cheer, but don't cheer too loudly, please. We need to preemptively root out all seeds of idolatry. This is why on social media you will, fight, you will see me fight against so-called Christian feminism. Because feminism these days is not about treating everyone equally. It's about bringing men down to where they should be, according to the feminist mindset. And it's the process of you, and it is a process of usurping the law and order that God established and has been followed by the people of God for thousands of years. Christian feminism has rooted in the church, and even the most simple and innocent female minds have been corrupted by its teachings. And the truth is, I said female because it's feminism, but the truth is, even the most simple and, and humble male minds have been corrupted. We need to root out anything preemptively that might usurp our relationship with God. But that's not all. You may think that I'm crazy, or you may think that I'm harsh when I bash on your shows that you watch that have nudity and sexual acts performed on screen. You may think that Orange is the New Black and Fifty Shades of Grey, uh, Grey and Game of Thrones is okay. It's innocent enough because, because it's mostly this, and it's only a little bit about this. But I'm here to tell you the reason that it's okay is because you have allowed a corrupted mind to be rooted in your head. You've allowed, you've allowed seeds of idolatry to be rooted in you, and whereas you did not tear down the old asherim, where you did not tear down the old uh, pillars of the old life, you've allowed them to take root sometime long before to where things that are clearly spoken against in the Bible are now seen as just second-hand um, things we pay attention to when it's convenient. This is why, again, since I'm already ticking people off, this is why I want my wife and myself to have the greatest influence on my children and not a teacher at school. Because I know personally that my worldview is biblical. And I know that the biblical, the, the view of my wife is biblical. And while I don't think you are sinful if you send your kids to a school, I do think that it's harder to maintain and to root out seeds of idolatry. This is why I preach through the Bible expositorily. Because I don't get to choose then what I like and what I don't like. As a matter of fact, as I'm sinning in my own life and I come to a passage of Scripture, I can't just skip over it because you'll say, hey Bryce, what about this? 
No, I have to abuse myself with it and then, re- and then know that I'm redeemed by the Lord and I'm covered by the Lord. It is a good check for the pastor to preach expositorily as much as it is the congregation. This is why we practice church discipline because, friends, most church dissension, most church infighting, most church backbiting doesn't just begin at 100 miles an hour. As a matter of fact, it doesn't begin at 60 or 20. It begins at zero, and it's because there's nobody policing the speed limits in the first place. That's why we practice church discipline in our church, to root out every form, every seed that might pull ourselves away from worship, from our covenant with the Lord. Because, friends, you need to know this as we move on. There is only one option. You are covenanting with the Lord or you are covetanting with other gods. That's very difficult to say. I didn't realize how difficult it was to say when I was working on this. This is also why we do a hundred other things counterculture in this world. We do a hundred other things that are counterculture to the world where the world will literally look at you like you're a nut. Where, hey, it's even worse I've been in Christian groups even recently where even Christians look at you like you're a nut. Friends, we must sweep out the old leaven. We must pull every root, every seed. that would prevent us from having a right relationship and a covenant restored with the Lord. Why do we do this? The Bible says because the Lord is a jealous God. A jealous God. He will not what? You've heard it a million times. He will not share His glory with another. We tend to think of jealousy as bad and, 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 and really it is from our depraved mindset. But done rightly, jealousy is one of the most single, most important characteristics in a marriage or a relationship. Christian jealousy is much different than worldly jealousy. Christian jealousy should be defined not by a lack of trust, but it should be defined by a fierce protection. A fierce protection, not by a lack of trust. I'm jealous for my wife. Like, I, do, I don't want anyone in the world to ever have her in the way I have her. I don't want anyone in the world to know her in the way I know her. But you know what? I don't go through her text messages either. I don't go through her text messages. I don't read her private messages on Facebook. I don't watch, matter of fact, she has to tell me of other interaction that she has or I wouldn't notice it. And it's not because I don't love her. It's not because I don't care for her. It's because my jealousy is justified and my jealousy is sort of uh, satisfied by my trust for her. Christian jealousy is not a bad thing. It is where the Lord is fiercely protective, like a good husband is fiercely protective. And we violate our covenant with him when we are given over, when we give our marriage rights over to another. We covenant with someone else. So the first thing we need to know is this. The Lord says, he reemphasizes this because it's already been said before. Don't make a covenant. Don't make a treaty with the people of the land. Root out any potential sin. And then the Lord does this. He establishes for them a pattern of worship and rest. You shall not make yourself Uh, Any gods of cast metal, we've already talked about graven images a million times, so we're not going to go over that again. But then he goes through and he talks about the Sabbath rest, and he goes through and he talks about the three feasts, the the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. The Lord not only reiterated the importance of taking a Sabbath rest, a literal weekly rest where we put down the cares of the world and the responsibility of work, even in our busiest times. He says whether you're plowing or whether you're in your harvest. He's talking about the busiest times. Those things that are time sensitive. He reiterates the importance of taking rest. The focus on the day of rest is this, so that we will focus on the Lord so that we'll be less apt to commit spiritual adultery. 
But he also mentions three annual feasts. Therefore, he is creating a pattern of worship. These were feasts established to commemorate a special work of the Lord, but also established to make a regular pattern of worship amongst God's people. The first is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where they ate bread without yeast for seven days in the month of Abib. This was a reminder of when they were rescued from the land of Egypt. This feast began with the Passover meal, and it ended one week after. Then there is the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Harvest. This is where the first produce of harvest was presented as a sacrifice to the Lord. This was an annual feast to thank God for His blessings and provisions for being the Lord of the harvest. Then there was a Feast of Booths and Tabernacles. This, was remi- this reminded them of the years they spent under the provision of God in the desert in booths or these small little tents that they rode around in or that they kept setting up as they went around in the desert. The Sabbath and these feasts were meant to remind people that serving God comes more naturally when we have regular patterns of worship in our life. But this is also the point, uh, this is also to point us to Jesus, right? It was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread that the people were reminded of God providing a lamb and a way of rescue. And of course, we have the perfect way of rescue through Jesus. It was at the Feast of Weeks, known as the Day of Pentecost, where the Lord of the harvest came to His harvesters and promised a harvest greater than they had ever seen. And of course, um, the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, is filled by the joy of God tabernacling amongst us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Lord was establishing in His people amongst his people, regular patterns of worship which kept them away from covenanting with another God. Now I think it's obvious how we keep these today. We keep these by establishing regular patterns of worship in our life, by not forsaking the assembly of believers as is the habit of some. That was one of the first that is we see in the New, uh, the New Testament, the New Covenant that the regular worship with believers was not to be forsaken, but it was to be reinstituted and even reinforced. We do this by remembering uh, daily the incarnation of Christ, not just one time a year, not just at Christmas and Easter only. We also remember annually, but daily, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We establish regular patterns of worship by keeping communion, by uh, practicing baptism, and practicing spiritual disciplines, but also by reading the Bible with our children, reading the Bible by ourselves, singing regularly the songs of the Lord that exalt His name with our children and with ourselves. Corporate worship and personal worship Almost inevitably, we will follow the Lord closely when we have patterns of worship cemented in our lives. But friends, the opposite is also true. Almost inevitably, will we break fellowship with the Lord when we abandon regular patterns of worship in our lives. So many times we look and we think, where has the Lord gone? But our cars haven't made it to the parking lot of a church gathering in years or months or weeks. We think, where has the Lord gone as the dust settles on top of our Bible and the pages haven't been turned in years or weeks, months maybe, maybe even days? The answer is the Lord did not remove Himself from us, but we remove ourselves from Him by covenanting covenanting with other gods. There's one last emphasis the Lord places on the Ten Commands, and this is very important in every area of our life. God's people are to give of their first fruits. This is not going to be a message on tithing. Don't worry. We've had those. We'll have them again. Verse 19, the Lord says that the first offspring shall be given to him. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. After all, God is the giver of life. And every creature that is given life belongs to the Lord. But to show this, the Israelites were called to give of the first of all of those things that have life. It is true that we are to give of the first fruits of our labor. We are to give what we have to the Lord as an offering. But friends, the Lord is showing us today that He wants much more than money. He wants our lives. 
He wants our marriage. He wants the lives of our children. He wants our grandchildren. He wants our extended family. He wants us to create a spiritual family by being gospel proclaimers and then us, instead of taking credit for it, to give it back to Him. He wants our very existence to be an offering to Him. He wants our focus, our attention, our gifts, our minds, our hearts. He wants our daily lives redeemed and set aside as holy for Him. Friends, He wants more than your money. He wants more than your time. He wants your life. And your life is more than just about what you can give God. It is about that. But your life is also about developing patterns of loving God in, ways that we, in the ways that we can do, but in the ways that He has taught us by the way He loves us. That was really confusing. It is loving God in the way He loves us as much as we can do it. Covenanting with Him. I'm just going to say making a covenant with Him, okay? You get what I'm saying from this this point forward. He wants our lives. Through Jesus, there's a mutual understanding between God and man where God gave His life as a covenant with us. As a sign of our covenant with God, we give our lives to Him. Far too long, friends, we have given the Lord the leftovers. We have feasted on the blessings from the Lord, and we have given Him the scraps back and said, Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We give Him the scraps of our finances. We give Him the scraps of our time. We give Him the scraps of our energy. We waste, not waste, we put all of our energy into all of the things we love all week. And then we get here on Sunday morning and we're late and we're tired and we're disconnected and we're disassociated with people and we say, here is my offering, Lord. My dad's taught me a lot in life, but one of the, one of the things that he's taught me that has stuck true is that the, I was, my life was, and everything that belonged to me first belonged to God. And as an offering to that, I'm to give it first to Him and not last. Now, I don't always do that. I'm not perfect in this. We don't have all the time to describe all the ways that I fall short of this. But I do know that that is my striving, that is my pursuit to give the best and not the scraps. There's one more aspect of this text I want us to focus on today And it's the motivation for keeping the Ten Commandments or the hundreds of commandments or the ones that the Lord reiterates today. It's found in verses 6 through 7. Some of the most important verses in the Bible, and it's not going to hurt us. It's only going to help us to read them again. Look at verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In these verses, we can see the nature of God defined in one of the most concise ways in all of Scripture. I want to spend a few minutes looking at what the Lord says about himself. The Bible says in verse 6 that the Lord passed by him and proclaimed again, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord is speaking to Moses. He's telling Moses, hey, this is me again. Just in case the cloud that consumed you, you know, the thunder, all the other signs that I've been giving you didn't, you know, you didn't recognize those. This is me, the Lord. But he's also saying something else more importantly because he gives these characteristics of salvation. And we have to remember that Yahweh is the name of salvation. And the Lord is about to tell them, just as we've already read in this text, that salvation will remain with His people. The Lord. Salvation. Salvation. But we only see a glimpse of the Lord, right? We don't actually see Him. We just hear who He is. And the reason is, is because Moses, just like we, just like the rest of the people of God who have ever existed, have to walk by faith and not by sight. Just as all of God's people will 
do until he returns. But the Lord speaks his name so that Moses will know that it is him. And he's adding extra emphasis to what he says. He goes into some very important characteristics that we will discuss that define God that we've discussed before, we'll briefly discuss today, and we'll discuss a million other times again. And this is, I promise you, briefly. But here we go. Here are the characteristics of the fine God that are most important. The Lord is merciful and gracious. Two of the defining characteristics of salvation of the Lord and two reasons that the Lord is still talking to Moses and keeping his covenant with his people is that he is merciful and gracious. The word merciful means compassionate or it means sympathetic to our weakness. The Lord understood even before Jesus experienced it as man, as flesh and blood on this earth, he understood that temptation came. He understood that our surrounding environment plus the sin of Adam made for a difficult, difficult road as we walk with him. He even experienced this like us at the incarnation of Jesus. Psalm 103 says, As the Father has compassion for his children, so too the Father has compassion on us. This compassion is a gentle understanding that we have when our children stumble or struggle through this life. It's not enabling them to sin and do more, but it is understanding that it is understanding of what, it, what, hap, what is happening, that they're learning, that they're growing, that gives a gentle but stern voice. It gives us moments of quiet reflection as we peek into their minds and try to figure out how to handle certain disciplinary situations. It gives us empathy to understand that our children are still learning are in and in fact a work in progress instead of a completed work. It is the times we choose to discipline not as harshly or not at all because of the under a better understanding of the situation. The Lord in this way is compassionate. He is able to sympathize with our weakness. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is also merciful. Now, merciful and gracious together here means that we have the unmerited favor of God, which means He gives us good gifts that we haven't earned, and He, withhold, he withholds punishment that we have. <clears throat> These two characteristics are important because we, because we live in a world that is constantly crying for justice as if everyone deserves to have a life perfectly ordered or laid out, as if any slight or major, major trouble should be removed. And it's made a world, me included at time, full of pansies. People who cannot handle, both men and women, who cannot handle, handle the simplest struggles in life. Because often we are so entitled, we live in such prosperity, that we think we deserve perfect lives. We often even parent this way, trying to withhold any sort of trouble, any sort of pain from our children. But as the world begs for justice, friends, don't jump on that train. Because what they don't realize is that they don't need justice, but they need mercy. They don't need justice, but they need grace. Justice would be getting what they deserve, which would be far more than they could handle. Grace and mercy is then God withholding what we deserve. The Israelites deserve justice. And in a sense, they're like the people of our time who cry for justice. But justice, instead of being something that they would delight in, ended up meaning God's abandonment. A broken covenant. But instead of justice, God showed mercy. He showed grace, which in the nature of God is still just. It's just not the kind of justice we deserve. How sweet is it that our Father is compassionate and merciful, that He gives us not what we deserve, but He gives us unmerited favor where we deserve unending punishment. He's slow to anger. He's slow to anger. The Lord in His grace and mercy withholds countless times, withholds justice, withholds punishment countless times. For long periods of times, He withhold, withholds His wrath. <gasps> Excuse me. He is a God of second and third and many, many chances. Micah 7.18 says, Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of His possession? He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in unchanging love. The Lord here is slow to anger, which lets us know some very important things. Unlike me, when I'm a bad parent, I do not act He does not act impulsively like I do. He does not lash out. But his anger is thought out, it's justified, it's reasoned. 
It's righteous. He does not spout out abruptly or react off unhinged or off the chain. The Lord allows us to dig our own holes. He allows us to work things out our way. And then in just the right way, in a slow and methodical and a way only God can do, He points out our offenses. And with righteous anger, He declares us guilty. And yet we still look in the hole, look up from the hole we dug and say, What, Lord? What have I done? I was just building a temporary house. He is slow to anger. But the last thing, or not the last thing, but he, that doesn't mean he's slack. That will be the last thing in a minute. He's abounding in steadfast love. That's the third little bullet pointer there. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I promise you'll be done soon. The Bible says, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The word steadfast here is kessed, which is loving kindness. It's his loving kindness to us. And this is, I thought this was beautiful. The word loving kindness, the word faithfulness is emmet, which is truth and truthfulness. This is what this means. The Lord loves us, but more than he loves us, he cannot deny himself. More than he loves us, he's truthful to himself. So if you sit and think, well, look, I am rescued by the Lord, and it's all because of his love, it's partially true. But when we look at the Lord's rescue, it's not all because of his love. We look at the Lord's rescue and we say, Lord, you're, you're saving me because you said you would. You're saving me because you covenanted, you made a covenant, there we go, to do that, and you cannot deny yourself. It is his loving kindness and his truthfulness to himself in that he saves thousands, not because we deserve his love or have earned his favor, but because he does love us and is faithful to himself. Showing that he is love, it's long-lasting, it's far-reaching. The Bible says that he forgives our iniquity. That's the word NASA, and I don't know if NASA kind of took that word. I know it stands for something else, but it literally means to lift up. So I don't know if NASA took that word and used it or not, but it means he lifts up the burden from us. That's our iniquity. He, he describes how he takes away our iniquity. He describes how he cleanses us from those things. Our iniquity is described as turning from good. Our transgression, which is the second thing he mis- mentions, is a willful violation of God's command. It's more intentional. And our sin then is an all-encompassing transgression of the law of God. God is covering all bases of what he's willing to forgive, of what his love covers. Friends, when we deserve just wrath for willful sin, he appeased that wrath through Jesus. When we abandon his love, he is true to himself and he continues to love us. When we are deep and filled with iniquity, he makes what was once scarlet as white as snow to thousands upon thousands. This is the nature of God. One last thing. I would be like a pastor that you might find down the road if I didn't leave this, if I didn't mention to you this last word. He is slow to anger, but he will not always be so. He's abounding in compassion and steadfast love, but as a father loves and disciplines his children, he will do also. The Bible says, but, but by who no means will clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This concept of generational punishment should not be foreign to you. And I'll close with this. Friends, the alcoholic is likely to have children who struggle with alcohol. The mentally depressed and suicidal, statistically, it's true the same. Those who are mentally or who are mentally, physically, or sexually abused or who do those things are likely to have other people in their family follow suit. Because our sins are passed down from generation to generation, just like the plague is passed through this church. Just like sickness is passed through this church. It is infected by someone who uh, comes around someone else and they give them that infection and it plants a root in them. And over time, usually pretty quickly, 
they and those around them are sick. But the good news, friends, is this. The pattern can be broken. If you are out of fellowship with God, you can break that pattern. If you have anger issues that you know are going to be passed down to your family, you can break that pattern. If you have issues with laziness, if you have issues with um, giving half effort, a lack of commitment to the Lord, you can break that pattern. We see it over and over again. The Lord will not continue, will will not abide with continual and perpetual abuse of His covenant. But if we repent, if we believe, if we trust in Him, He will redeem us. And He will redeem the generation after us and the generation after us and the generation after us. This is why I stand to you and say, I don't know if every one of my children will be believers. But right now, I don't think about it in a worrisome sense. Do you know why? Because my wife and I are not perfect. You know, you, you probably think she is. I'm not perfect. I didn't need to say that, though, obviously. My wife and I are putting every effort that we know how to give into raising our children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Every effort into making sure that we don't live just for my generation, but we live for the next and the next and the next. And I pray one day, because I believe that I'll be with my family in heaven. I don't know what you believe in where someone taught you the wrong way. But I believe I'll be with my family in heaven. I believe I'll recognize them, I'll know them, and I'll spend time with them. And I hope one day to hold my, great, my grandchildren in my lap and my great-grandchildren in my lap and my great-great-grandchildren in my lap. Because I refuse to bow down to the gods of this world. And if it means you think I'm wrong, if it means you, I'm annoying on Facebook or Twitter, if it means you don't like my political stance, I don't care. Now, I'll try to be seasoned with salt, and I'll try to be kind in the way, not always will I do that, but I'll try to be kind in the way I mention it, but I don't care because I'm not ultimately living for you. I'm living so that I can hold my grandbabies in heaven. I'm living so that I can hold my children in heaven. I'm living because what happens tomorrow is better than what this world tells me is happening right now. God, we love you. Lord, you're good and you're holy. And we often fail you so many times. We often are so far away. We let seeds of guilt and seeds of the old life and a a life that is not even ours come in and uproot our covenant with you. We break covenant so much, Lord. Lord, would you help us to be a people who reaffirm daily our covenant with you? Lord, that the first fruits of our life would be given to you, that the most important things of our life would be given, our lives would be given to you. God, we praise you. We love you. Lord, I thank you for the commitment to you of all the people in here, Lord. On some level, they are deeply committed to you. I pray that you would strengthen us and that every day, every time I get up here, they wouldn't look at me as being as chastising or being overly critical. But they would look at me as just trying to challenge as iron sharpens iron, so does one man sharpen the next. God, we love you so much. We praise you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.